This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time to talk politics, and there's an interesting development in the election, at least the horse race aspect. The Ford PCs are in the lead as expected, but the latest Nanos poll finds that the Liberals appear to be gaining ground in terms of their leader's appeal. Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca has gained seven points in just over a week. That's impressive. So can he keep up with some momentum? Meantime, both Doug Ford and Andrea Horvath have have dropped, but not much. And they're all up in North Bay preparing for the first debate on Northern issues, which begins right after this show. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. So now I'd like to welcome Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South, filling in for Lisa Wright, David Tarrant, VP of National Strategic Communications at Enterprise, and filling in for Howard Hampton, Cameron Holstrom, an NDP strategist consultant at Blue Sky Strategy Group. Hi, all, and welcome. Hi, Libby. How are you doing? Hello there. Hello. So, um... We have to ask Charles about this first, but there's a point I'd like to make. I have covered many, many elections, not just in Ontario, not even just in Canada. And one thing that crops up over and over again, and it's it's not by party, is that there's some candidate or leader and people say, this person can't win. He or she has no charisma. They're a loser. Mike Harris, I remember being completely dismissed as a golf pro. And then kaboom, the person maybe can win. So, Charles, what do you make of the results for Stephen in the last poll? You know, it's um, it's actually to his advantage, people underestimating him over this last couple of years, especially. Um, and he recognizes his style and his mannerism, and he's a bit more wooden than most, but he's articulate. He's certainly smart. His real challenge is not to come across as being too smart, being more folksy and a bit more open and warm uh, to those uh, that he communicates with. And that's hard to do over the camera and over the TV. But on a one-on-one, he's pretty good. But all that to say, he has nowhere but to go up. I mean, the party was in doldrums. It was at its worst point ever. And he'll be seen as a star, even even if he only becomes uh, the leader of the opposition, the official opposition. That'll still be a big turnaround and a big win. Um, yeah, so uh, I think people, when they come to appreciate and understand what he's about, then they come to appreciate this guy's actually a pretty serious guy. He's not a light. He does have a lot of depth. And, uh, yeah, so once you start to scratch the surface, oftentimes you're disappointed by by there's nothing underneath. Well, this guy has plenty underneath, and I think that's that's going to give him a lot of kudos, especially when they put him against uh, Doug and others during a debate. David Tarrant, uh, I am thinking back to the 2015 federal election, and Justin Trudeau gained a lot by being underestimated, and it helped catapult him from third party to the prime minister. Yeah, you know, Libby, I'd say I don't think anyone. Uh, it's not. I don't think anyone around Doug Ford is underestimating any of their opponents. I mean, in the case of of, of Mr. Del Duca, you're talking about a, a former senior cabinet minister and Kathleen Wynne's government. I mean, Charles knows them well. They, Kathleen Wynne and, and Charles and, and, and Stephen Del Duca, were a big part of of, of that Wynne liberal government. And and so, of course, he's going to be an, an experienced operator uh, with experience in, in government. Um, you know. I think the real challenge, though, is is uh, I think Charles kind of let something slip there about like is he running to be the win the election or is he running to try to beat out the NDP for second place? And you know, and and respectfully, I think to 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 this poll or that poll, uh, um, you know, what what the people voter Ontario voter is going to look at is actually who has the most optimistic plan for the future. 
And and today's, I think, what you see is, is a message that's that's pretty backward looking and negative from the liberals. So I'm interested to see how they use the last three weeks to try to kind of you know, put something forward that's a little more optimistic. Cameron Holstrom, uh, Andrea Horvath has lost a couple of points, not a, not a serious drop, but just looking at the personalities and, and the way she's coming across, what advice would you give her? I mean, uh, as, as we've been saying, Stephen Del Duca is not exactly exciting or folksy. No, this is true. And I think for Andrew, she needs to keep her focus at the front of the line. Going, talking about replacing this this premier and what she can offer. And I think the big difference here, this is kind of interesting the comparison to 2015, because I was on the ground during that one. And one of the most frustrating experiences for me in that campaign was hearing Justin Trudeau throw out all kinds of big, big promises that we knew would eventually be broken. I think of electoral reform is probably the biggest one. But I'm seeing the same kind of things coming from the Liberal campaign this time. You know, the one, my wife is a teacher, and when she heard about the promise to cap class sizes at 20 students across the board, like, yeah, that'd be fantastic. We would love to see that. But schools are already short teachers as it stands. So my wife teaches in a school here in Eastern Ontario. They're already short three, three teachers, and they don't have any uh, qualified teachers to be in the supply pool. So if you're all of a sudden going to start capping class sizes at 20 across the board, where are you going to find all these teachers? You're talking about 10,000 teachers you're going to need. And that's not a matter of money of being able to fail entirely. They just aren't there. They aren't trained. They aren't available. So, again, it's like you're putting a promise in the window saying, I'm going to do this, knowing full well you're not likely going to be able to do it. And I guess to me, that maybe it's a cynic in me looking at that and thinking of that, but it's like that doesn't make for very good policy. And it, it, at the end, it makes, it makes people more cynical about the whole process. And I think that issue of trust here is big. Because Doug Ford's got a lot of broken promises. Mr. Del Duca, as it's been mentioned, sat in cabinet in the Wynn government. Lots of broken promises there and lining up for more. Whereas Andrea Horvath has that kind of trust with people. So it's for her to keep that focus on what she, on what she has to offer and be positive in that sense. Charles, uh, a couple of things here. So uh, I couldn't help but notice that that particular promise would certainly appeal to teachers' unions who have been good allies for liberal governments. And and uh, I, I see that David Tarrant is very much on message. Uh, one of the strategists seemed to be to associate Del Duca with Kathleen Wynne absolutely as much as possible. And it's true, he was a big part of that cabinet. Yeah, I mean, both, both of them have commented on the partisan issues. And I get it, that's politics. And certainly in the last win government, of which I was a big part of, um, we had our challenges, and I fought back on a number of them. But what's going forward now, and even this particular promise about capping um, classes at 20, the biggest challenge isn't just teachers. It's also just the averaging of those class sizes, because maybe you're talking about one student, and then what do you do with the rest, right? So you have to also be pragmatic in the approach that we go forward. But all that to say is part of the plan is to hire teachers, and if you don't proceed to have a, a destination or a goal, then you're just going to have the status quo. So it's appropriate to plan and put forward the promises and recognize that the challenges exist and we have to change them. Will it take a year? Will it take more than a year, given that we have to uh, bring more teachers on board? Absolutely. And when it comes to associations with Kathleen Wynne and the previous government, and for that matter, Del- Dalton McGinty, we, we had all those things over that period of time. I get it. But what I'm seeing right now is the conservatives are now reapplying the very things they broke in terms of promises and, and, and issues that we had approved in Treasury Board. They're coming back. They're coming back to do it again. And the NDP are recycling old, old um, platform messages, but they haven't really costed them as well. And so I'm excited about the fact that we're challenging the status quo. We recognize you have to be bold. Sometimes it's tough but it's appropriate to, to engage and, and, and incite people to think about what they want to do going forward. David Tarrant, I, I think you hit the nail on the head that the perception of most people anyway is that the race is between Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca for opposition leader. Why do you think Ms. Horvath is losing ground or not resonating while he's gaining uh, in terms of the way she comes across or whatever? You know, it's a good question, Libby. And I, I think I want to make clear the first thing is 
Uh, I don't. No one around Premier Ford is is taking either of the opponents lightly. As you said from the outset correctly, a lot can happen during the course of the campaign. I was making comment that um, Charles was was I think uh, very cleverly kind of was trying to set expectations up for what would be what liberals would view as success in in, in the campaign. Um, listen, opposition is hard. I've worked in opposition uh, politics. It's hard. And one of the traps you fall in as an opposition party, and, and, and it's not a partisan point, I see that, for example, the federal conservatives deal with the same issue every day, uh, is you spend a lot of time talking to the people who are already there with you. And you mentioned yourself about, oh, you know, the, 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 they seem to be bending over backwards to, to curry favor with the teachers' unions. But that, that's all well and good. But if you're, if you're only speaking to the people who you know, weren't enough for you to get elected last time, you're not going to grow your support. And I compare that to what, what Premier Ford did. On the very first day of the campaign, he went there and was introduced by the head of the UNA, a, a major labor union. You know, literally 10 years ago, no one in organized labor was talking, would even think about supporting the PCs. And I think this was a different approach where, where Premier Ford is all about talking to people who haven't been with, the, with this party in the past and growing their support. And, and the other parties are, are speaking to, quite frankly, their existing base of support. And, and, you know, can they change that? Well, I think that's a good question for the remainder of the campaign. Well, you know, I'm not entirely sure about that. One thing I've noticed, as you know, here, we focus on an older demographic. And uh, I heard some very thoughtful things from both opposition parties on fixing long-term care, which is not an easy fix, and on home care, and much less so from the progressive conservatives. And, you know, sometimes people that call in have the impression that Doug Ford, as much as they love him, because he resonates as a personality, uh, is maybe taking them for granted. Charles Souza, do you think that's what's going on? I mean, everyone's talking about long-term care. And of course, over COVID, there's been, it was a, it was a tragedy. I mean, and I'm not blaming any one particular government, right? There's been successive governments in play, that have uh, allowed certain practices and institutions to exist. And what we found was that they were exposed and they were vulnerable and people died. And, and, and that's horrific. And, and, uh, and did Doug Ford and the PCs do an effective job of correcting it, given the constraints of time? They didn't. But are they trying to? Sure they are. And what we're all trying to do is provide something better in terms of quality of care and services for our elderly and our most vulnerable so that they are not only safe, but they feel welcome and they feel um, united with the rest of society. I mean, they're not in institutions or prisons, and this is, this is so tragic. And, and frankly, um, I, I, I'm, I'm more inspired by some of the plans that we have going forward. And in our last Treasury Board, we, we announced that we put up to 30,000 new beds in place, and certainly uh, the conservatives have issued and continue to go through that practice. But it's more than just issuing beds. Issuing people, PSWs, the care, the services, the continuum of care, the, the, the social programming, also so many things where we have family unity in play. And that's a real challenge, and I'm hopeful. What we, what we want is someone that's not shooting from the hip and trying to do things last minute and changing their minds, is what Doug Ford has done many times. You need someone who's deliberate, disciplined, and is forward-thinking in terms of what we're going to head out to. And certainly in the platform and in the, and in, in the release made recently by the Liberal government of Ontario, it talks a lot about that. Cameron, uh, are the Liberals eating the NDP's lunch on those issues? I wouldn't think so, because at the end of the day, the NDP's been the one who's been pushing, especially when it comes to, to privatized long-term care and getting the profit out of the system. Like, let's be honest, we've seen that throughout this whole, we saw this throughout the crisis, that those privately owned long-term care facilities were the worst performing and had the worst outcomes. And that's partially because, yeah, you are taking a percentage out of that funding going in to profits going towards a shareholder somewhere else, not going into care. And that has shown to have that effect. And the NDP is one talking about actually pulling that out of the system and reinvesting it in. But when it comes to Mr. Ford, the one thing I'll note, too, maybe that's one of the reasons why they don't want to talk about it so much, is that when it came to COVID care, about eight, uh, eight, um, eight, sorry, out of every $10, eight came from Ottawa. And the fact is, is that the Ford government pocketed a lot of that money and didn't reinvest it back in long-term care. The, the Auditor General pointed that much out. So, again, it's like, yes, they did do things. Yes, they did step up in many ways. I, I've got my grants with Mr. Ford, but I've also given him kudos on certain things in the crisis. But when it comes to the actual investments and what was put into the system, 
you, you can't say it was better than other provinces what they did because most other provinces took the money they were given by Ottawa and put it right back into the care and actually doing that. And it's been Andrea Horvath up there pointing that out every day throughout this whole crisis. Uh, David Tarrant, let's turn to the conservative leadership race for a minute. Uh, there was this debate last week. They all participated other than Patrick Brown. And uh, it's getting pretty heated. What's your take on what's going on there? Is that a good conversation for the party or is it divisive? Well, you know, it's a good question. And I mentioned in my previous answer about, you know, how, you know, the federal conservatives face similar challenges to the, uh, you know, to the uh, Ontario Liberals or NDP, where if you are in opposition long enough, it becomes really, really tempting to, Try to you know uh, fire up people who never left you, but but people who you know led you to uh, help weren't enough for you to win the last election, and and so I mean the the you know the federal conservative race right now in, in a leadership it's always a risk that people spend a lot of time playing to the base, playing to people who are activists who live for politics in a way the majority of people don't, uh, and that's just an, an occupational hazard uh, when you're in opposition. Um, at some point in time, uh, that party is going to need to do what what uh, what opposition parties everywhere need to do, and 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 how do they broaden their support? Uh, and I would argue that you know it, we in the election campaign in Ontario, there's a pretty good template from Doug Ford, who took over an opposition party, uh, and has shown the ability to actually fundamentally change. Uh, I'll tell you right now, I listen, I started working with the Ontario PC party. I worked on the 2007 campaign with John Tory, and I, I was there during the Hudak years. Um, the, the, the base of support for the party is drastically different and larger than it ever was in the past. And I think that's a deliberate approach that Doug Ford took, that he, he, he that these old-school kind of Mike Harris coalition from the 90s wasn't enough anymore. Uh, and, and, you know, that's a great template for other parties to follow about we actually got to build a support and actually rethink some approach to some issues uh, so we can grow and, and, and be competitive and be a viable choice for government. So I think it's a great template to follow. Well, you know, I read a very interesting headline this morning. It, it, I have to say, left me shaking my head a bit. It said, the controversy over Roe versus Wade in the United States is going to be a major issue in the leadership race for the conservatives. Uh, before we move along to the others, David Tarrant, do you think so? There's a lot of people who uh, I think both in conservatives and in, among the liberals and, and perhaps who very much seem fixated on an importing uh, U.S. cultural war debates north of the border. Uh, you know, just it's it's to me, it, 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 I think it shows um, uh, almost an amateurish. Nothing has changed about Canadian law on this in the last in years. Like what the U.S. Supreme Court chooses to do is utterly irrelevant. To what happens in Canada, but it seems to be a lot of people writing fan fiction, both conservatives and progressive, writing fan fiction how they wish they could be culture warriors in the U.S. and sort of playing make believe that that there's a culture war happening in Canada on this. Um, you know, there's more important issues for people to be talking about. Charles Souza, what do you think when you look at the conservative race for the leadership? You have Jean Charest in there, who uh, was a liberal when he was the premier of Quebec. Uh, and uh, you have a lot of, as David just pointed out, talking to the base that is much more right-wing. Yeah, I mean, the Quebec liberals at the time were really a conservative party, just as it was in, uh, in British Columbia more recently, uh, some 10 years back. Um, but yeah, there is a lot of poison and, um, and insults being thrown around. And to David's point, that's a function of, you know, being in opposition and they're being combative and certain Pierre's that make up. But, boy, they have a tendency to eat their own. And, I mean, Atkinson, I think, said it best, you know, like, stop demonizing and let's lead with respect, you know, earn trust. Because, after all, all, the, all in the end, all people care about is how do you make them feel. And is Pierre making you feel good? Is me, or is he building on the things that are tight or that make you upset, and then you want to fight back? And he's certainly catering to a number of the extreme, more extreme than the party. And there's a there's a movement, there's a, there's an anger that exists because they're not happy with Trudeau and they're not happy with I don't know their quality of life. Even though Canada is one of the most democratic societies in the world, and yet we seem to be fixated 
on certain things, and Pierre is bringing that out. Charest is trying to be a bit more conciliatory and you know, trying to unify the country and look at what happens next. But he's seen as, as a consequence by Pierre, too liberal. We'll see what Patrick Brown does when he comes into the next debate. He's had the benefit of staying out of the gunfire for the moment. We'll see if he's able to sort of be the, the individual that can maybe come up the middle. But I don't, I don't know the full makeup. I mean, you talk about the abortion discussion in the U.S., and certainly there are social conservatives that, notwithstanding you want to say it's fantasy, but people are still out there fighting for change in those laws in Canada from the conservative group. They may press the issue. If they do, it'll be more problematic uh, in terms of the next uh, pick of the leader. Cameron, I mean, David was talking about a template for growing the base, but, you know, that anger seems to be doing it for Pierre Polyev. Well, it's it's growing the base to win a leadership campaign. It's not growing the base to win a general election. I think that's, frankly, we've seen come out of the last two conservative leadership races federally. You saw this kind of energizing of the base that got new members in on the further right and raised lots of money. And then when the time came to actually try to elect that person prime minister, the general public looked at everything they had said in that leadership race and said, yeah, I know that's a little bit too much for me. Like, far be it for me to suggest too many ideas to the conservatives. But, you know what, Doug Ford has figured something out. And really, at the end of the day, there's a reason why Doug Ford is standing next to a, a, a Prime Minister Trudeau before the start of this campaign. is because there are just enough people who vote for Justin Trudeau for voting for Doug Ford. Which means there's just enough people who are voting for Doug Ford who are not voting for the Conservatives federally. And you have to figure that piece of the equation out if you're going to try to do something. And yes, it does mean talking about some of these issues like abortion. Like To, to call it fan fiction, is, to me, that's, it's kind of insulting because you have the Campaign Life Coalition actively raising money and getting signatures for one official candidate, Leslie Lewis, and they had for two others who they tried to get into the race. And this has continued to happen. You know, it's interesting. It's a very interesting piece by John Oliver on this, on his show on HBO on Sunday night. And he pointed out that after Roe v. Wade happened in the U.S., the conservative movement writ large did not, they started right there and then to try to overturn it. They never stopped. They kept pushing. They kept chipping away at it, working the system, you know, working the political system to eventually get to this point. So this idea of, you know, culture wars being imported to our country, I'm, I'm sorry, they're here. I don't like them, but they're here because you have people actively signing up members raising money and promoting candidates who are pushing for this. Whether if they, The fact they haven't succeeded yet is not the point. It's that they're still trying. And to me, if you're the conservative leader, you have a choice. You don't have to be held captive to that, which is why when I look at Jean Charest, to me, it's very interesting because he's the kind of person who's probably more palatable. He could probably win to be prime minister, but can he win to be conservative leader? I think that's the, that, that is the dilemma that conservatives are trying to sort out this time. And I honestly believe the way Pierre Polyev's going about it, trying to crush his opponents, you can't unify a party around that. You can't unify a party through force. And I have a hard time picturing a conservative caucus after this race that looks like it is now if one of those people win, because who's going to stick around to be the loser in that circumstance and, and be the be the good soldier? I have a harder time picturing that. Well, Honestly, I'm, I'm not sure that there's a, a culture war around abortion in this country. I think there's pretty well a, a general consensus to leave well enough alone. But David Tarrant, I mean, the conventional wisdom is somebody like Pierre Poiliev could never win a general election. And I'm wondering if it's like a lot of the other conventional wisdom that it was true once and maybe not anymore. I, I mean, it's, 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 I think you yourself said it a couple of minutes ago, Libby, like there's a, maybe it was Charles Cameron, the, the, the it, it, it's a different beast running for the leadership of a party than running in a general election. And um, to assume the kind of language you're hearing from the conservative candidates for leader right now, um, it, it's going to be similar to, to what happened to campaign, I think is, is making an assumption. Now the previous conservative leader, Mr. O'Toole was very inelegant and quite frankly inauthentic in how he did it. He, he ran as a true blue conservative leadership, and then he kind of did a very, I think, inartful pivot. Uh, so you need, to, you need to try to find a way to preserve some sort of consistency. But, but you know, we're not in a general election yet. And if, if, if this NDP liberal coalition holds true, it probably won't be for, for a number of years. So 
So it's, I think there's a lot of tea leaf reading right here. I, I would say one thing Cameron said is really uh, important um, is that those of us who worked in partisan politics and people, some people love it, some people hate it and all that, um, uh, see the world through either partisan eyes or ideological eyes or however you want to see it. I don't know if it's Charles, Cameron, myself, anyone else who, who's, who's been this. Cameron made a good point. There are a significant number of people in the province of Ontario who voted for Justin Trudeau and voted for Doug Ford and are happy with both votes. Hmm. Uh, and it's, I think, just a, it's a, and it's a useful reminder that a large number of the public don't view the world through partisan ideological eyes. Um, they want to know at any given time, any given election, when they come out, who has the best plan, who has the best ideas, the willingness to actually get things done for them. And, you know, and the fact that there are people out there who are quite happy to be Trudeau voters and Ford voters, I think should be a positive fact for partisans of all parties that, um, you know, that maybe we read a little too much ideology of partisanship in, into the, how politics is done in this country, because that's just not where, where the Canadian equilibrium happens to be. Uh, that's very interesting idea. Now, uh, as soon as the show is over, the first debate on Northern issues is going to go ahead. I think it's going to be pretty localized. But before this panel reconvenes next Tuesday, there will be another debate, more general, here in Toronto. So uh, to wrap things up, what are is will the debate be important, first of all? And, and what are you looking for in that debate, starting with Cameron? Well, as someone who's from Northwestern Ontario myself, you know, I appreciate the Northern debate. debate. And I'm kind of curious to see what everyone's going to have to say about it in this time around. But when it comes to that big debate on Monday, you know, really, it's going to be making that differentiation about try giving people that choice. I like the fact that the debate's happening early in the cycle because it actually gives people a chance to take that, assess it in a few weeks and to make a decision before they go vote rather than having to wait till the very end. Like it actually has a chance to have that impact which raises the stakes. For Andrea Horvath, I believe she needs to come across as that premier in waiting, that she is the one who's been working towards that in these last four years, and that she deserves the trust that maybe the other two don't. So, But that's going to be her task on Monday night. David? Yeah, I think one question I'd, I'd advise to me, all of your listeners, when they're watching either of the debates, Libby, is um, you could tell how a candidate feels about where things stand. Uh, if a candidate feels that things are going well and that they're and they're campaigns do what they want to do, they'll spend a lot of time talking about their plans, what they want to do. If a campaign is not doing well, that's when you see candidates go on the attack. Attack, 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 throw punches, because they have to mix things up, they have to change things. I feel pretty confident the Premier Ford's going up there, quite confident to talk about his plans for the future. You know, you see it on the party of the getting building infrastructure, highways, you know, putting money back in people's pockets. It's interesting to see the other parties. Are they confident talking about their plans? Are they going to spend their time attacking the creamer? Because that's how you tip your hand about how these campaigns actually feel they're doing. Hmm. That's a, a, an interesting tip. Charles Souza, last word to you. Yeah, thanks for the call, everyone. And I, I think the debate is going to be critical, especially for Stephen Del Duca, who hasn't been as well known in this uh, past couple of years, even though he was Minister of Transport in the, in the previous government. Doug Ford has been getting all the attention. And this is an opportunity for Stephen to stand apart and uh, show himself as being more competent, more disciplined. However, what people will look at is emotion and how you make them feel and who they can identify with. And this is where Stephen has to be a bit, a little bit less policy, a little bit more, I don't know, less, don't, don't come across as being too smart because it comes across as being condescending. And this is a part that's going to be a challenge for him. He knows his issues probably much better than, than, than the other two uh, candidates. Um, and, and, I, and I, I, I'm hopeful that uh, he'll be able to resonate with emotion and with a bit more care for the others, for people's livelihood. And, and this is what this is all about. And, and when it comes to Trudeau, who's, had, who's been a master at getting people's feelings, I, I wouldn't say, David, that people are so happy with both of these individuals. I think they're just less happy with the alternative. And when it came to voting for Justin Trudeau in the last election, at the doors, people were saying, I'm not voting conservative because of Doug Ford. This time around, the people are saying, oh, I'm not voting liberal because of Justin Trudeau. So it's not so much that they're happy with anybody. They're just less happy with the alternative. So they're just, and I find that is what makes it possible in Ontario politics forever. It's always been 
differences uh, of parties at the federal and the provincial level, keeping each other in check. Okay, interesting. And thank you all, especially for the tips on what to look for during the debate. I think that's useful. I know that our audience is very engaged, and I'm sure they will be watching the debate. And we, of course, will have the highlights for you and all the important moments. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, thank you so much, David Tarrant, Cameron Holstrom, and Charles Souza. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. And we're going to take a break. When we come back, we've got some new numbers on wait times for surgery. There's good news. There's, well, good-ish news. There's bad news. It's still pretty high for the so-called elective surgeries, and we'll get right to that when we come back. And, of course, we want to hear from you if you are waiting for some surgery or for a loved one, 416-360-0740, toll-free 740 40. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We have some new numbers on wait times for surgery. There's good news and bad news. So the glass half full things have been improving since the beginning of COVID, and things are reasonably on track for emergency surgery and cancer surgery in a lot of places. However, there are still longer wait times for elective surgery, and I use that word elective advisedly because if you're in pain, in pain and unable to do your normal activities while waiting for a joint replacement, it's not really elective or something optional or a frill. And most of the delays were in joint replacement and cataract surgery. So according to the data from the Canadian Institute for Health Information, and this is for the first 18 months of COVID, there were about 600 thousand fewer surgeries performed in Canada, and 25% of those missed surgeries were joint replacements and cataract surgery. So I'd like to hear from you, especially if you or a loved one have been waiting for a hip or a knee replacement or cataract surgery. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Kevin Smith, CEO of the University Health Network, Dr. Joel Finkelstein, who's an orthopedic surgeon with Sunnybrook Hospital, and Tracy Johnson, the Director of Health System Analysis at Kai Hai. Welcome, all of you, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Let us begin with Tracy Johnson. So first of all, did any of this surprise you, uh, including uh, where the lags still are? I don't think any of this surprised us at Kai Hai. When we realized that the public health measures in those uh, first month or two of the pandemic were dictating that hospitals uh, suspend scheduled surgeries and focus only on the most urgent care, uh, we could immediately see that there would be a large impact. As you said, things like hips and knees and cataracts make up about 25% of all of the backlog surgeries because those are the ones that could be put on pause more readily than something like hip fracture repair or cancer surgeries. Dr. Smith, how are you doing at UHN in terms of elective surgery? And and I, I want to ask a question because uh, I'm sure the delayed surgeries are measured once there's been a diagnosis and it's been put on the calendar, but I know, I am sure that a lot of those specialist appointments that would get you there have also been delayed. Yeah, Libby, you're absolutely right. So I think like the study, our experience would clear out similar issues. We really prioritized um, life-threatening illness, and I'm not in any way demeaning uh, life-altering illness like like uh, joint replacement or our orthopedic colleague, I'm sure, will comment on that. But 
clearly we saw things like radiation therapies, hip fractures, uh, other serious operations uh, done at reasonably high levels and very close to uh, the expected or appropriate lengths of, of distance from diagnosis. I think what I'm a bit more concerned about as well is what about the screening programs that weren't as active or weren't able to be as active? The other piece I think we also have to recognize, and the Kaihai data was excellent in pointing this out in the study, that in the earliest of waves, not only was it our attention on treating COVID patients, but the fear of patients to come to hospital. And we've seen in a number of areas like cardiac illness and stroke and, and other neurological presentations that people avoided hospital and as a result may have seen a worse outcome. They were frightened to get this illness and thought that by coming to hospital, they might have exposed themselves to it. Completely untrue, but um, in the middle of a pandemic, fear is a, a huge motivator that we have to uh, recognize and work around. Dr. Finkelstein, I mean, these numbers are averages, and in terms of joint replacement, they say that uh, during this period, only about 60% of patients got treatment in the recommended amount of time, which is six months, uh, compared to more than 70%. But how... Uh, does that play out for you with your patients? And and do you have a backlog of people who just want to get in to see you? So, absolutely. So we already have um, a capacity issue in our healthcare system. So you can imagine that when with COVID, it created a uh, you know bigger uh, problems for us with uh, wait times and getting patients in. And, and I, I like the term life-altering illness, uh, which is what the orthopedic procedures really are. It's really quality of life and getting people back to work and recreation. And, and the whole thing, the, the whole pandemic um, didn't allow us to, you know, get these patients, you know, into surgery in the recommended, you know, period of time. And so this has, you know, created a uh, an overall health uh concern. Uh, it affected one's quality of life. And now we are trying to pick up that backlog. And there is a much, the, the wait list has gone up. And I, I'm a, a spine surgeon, not a total joint surgeon, but I'm very familiar with our, our total joint program. And we are, we are working hard at getting more ORs running. And our limitation now is, is staffing and nurses and anesthetists to, to, uh, to run the room. So even though we do want to get uh, on top of the wait list to try to get back to the 70%, you know, uh, get 70% of the uh, patients done within six months, we are having continued problems from the uh, pandemic in that we do have, we did have attrition of uh, staff and our wait times have gone up uh, and we are working hard at getting the backlog uh, done in, you know, for spine surgery and for total joint surgery. And this continues to be a problem, and uh, hopefully we will uh, catch up in the uh, not-too-distant future, but it will take um, human resource and uh, and financial resource. Do- Dr. Finkelstein, do you have a number about how how many cases are waiting longer than they should? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can't. I can only tell you my own practice yes. is that uh, in my own practice, yeah. the number of patients that, you know, would normally, you know, get done within, let's say, three to four months, and we're talking spinal surgery, what's happened is that people were on hold for, you know, a year, over a year, patients that would have had their procedures uh, done, but we were triaging the more urgent cases, the cancer cases, and the the more urgent spine cases, the cotaquinas or the progressive neurologic deficits, but not the, um, the... arthritic type processes like spinal stenosis that would be just like a an arthritic hip where people cannot do their recreational or they have pain you know just walking down the street so the so these patients you know have have been waiting now a year and the unintended consequence of this is that imaging that you got at the beginning is no longer appropriate oh, wow. you, you now have to reinvestigate everybody and People don't, you know, re- realize that. So it, it actually creates a, a delay because we have to now work them up because we can't rely we can't, on the old on the old imaging because they exactly. probably got worse. Um, right. 
I'd like that, to take exactly right. I'd so like that- to take a call from Angelo in Toronto. Hi, Angelo. Well, hi, Libby. Thank you for taking my call. Libby, I've been waiting over a year and a half for a knee replacement. Uh, last year, around October, November, I went back to see my family doctor, and he said that he called the hospital, and they said they lost all my information. So he had to send wow. the information back in again. You know, and I'm still waiting. And have have you seen a, a surgeon? Like, were you, have they no, told? No, no, nothing. Not a beep, not a sound, nothing. But maybe what I would like to say, we don't have, I don't blame the doctor, please, or the nurse. God bless them. They did a great, great job. You know, they're all overworked. But I blame our leaders because we have no government. We have tax collectors. That's all I want to say, Libby. Thank you very much, and have a great, great day. Thanks. And today uh, is my birthday. Oh, happy birthday, Angelo. <laughs> I hope you. you get your knee replacement for your birthday. Uh, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, people people are frustrated. Interesting that Angelo is not blaming uh, doctors. Uh, Dr. Smith, do you have a handle on the numbers of people who are backlogged or waiting for more mm-hmm. than six months? We certainly, over the life of the uh, pandemic, have looked at around five to 6,000 cases. We've caught up on a few, a couple of thousand of those. So we're still at about 4,000 procedures, not only surgical, but across the disciplines, surgery being uh, a highlight amongst them. Um, But in addition, I think we also know because primary care had been struggling to meet the needs of patients and and, uh, appropriate environments to see patients, and, of course, the, the preventive programs and screening programs, we also suspect that there's a significant amount of illness out there that might have been diagnosed earlier, as Dr. Finkelstein said. So we are seeing people with more serious disease, a later disease, and obviously that's a different procedure, a different intervention, a, a heavier length of stay potentially. So uh, clearly very much affected how the system will function. That having been said, Libby, one of the bright lights to me is how closely provider colleagues are working together, thinking about ideas like joint waiting lists uh, and first available appointments. Yeah, so you know what lots of hospitals talking now about, um, would you like to go to a place with a shorter waiting period of time? If we're able to bring on new graduate surgeons as an example and anesthetists and others, the whole surgical team or interventional team, are you willing to go and, and to site acts if that's something that you're willing to explore? And so lots of creativity, I think, also coming to the fore on this one. But you know what? At the end of the day, this really does come back to a health human resource issue that we don't have or haven't had adequate numbers, particularly of nursing call weeks, to be able to do the catch up as well as the regular work that's required. And it isn't a physical plant limitation. It's a people limitation. Uh, Tracy Johnson, in terms of the cataracts, they were the next most delays. What what, what did you what do you want to tell us about that? So cataracts have rebounded. We were at about they're about the same as they were pre-pandemic. Now they're at about sixty percent. Cataracts are a little bit easier. They're one of those surgeries that are um, procedures that tend to be a bit easier to. Um, gear up for because they can be done in the clinic. You can do an average of 12-ish, 11-12 a day. Um, they don't require an operating room and the same number of health human resources, as Kevin was going to say. I think one of the other things that Angelo's call points out a little bit is that virtual care or digital health care is probably going to help us in the future. Like with an electronic medical record, one would hope that his, his records would not have been lost and potentially he would be seeing that surgeon, some of it virtually, or at least making some initial contact with them virtually. Okay, we've got to take another break. Uh, we're going to say goodbye to Dr. Smith and Tracy Johnson. And when we come back, we're going to talk about something that is related to this. So thank you so much, Dr. Smith and Tracy Johnson. A lot of really good information here. Appreciate it. Thank you. You're very welcome. Okay, take the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We're continuing with a related topic with Dr. Finkelstein, and it's something that a lot of people with arthritis resist. 
I believe very strongly that it can delay or even replace the need for joint replacement. I'm talking about exercise, and there are new draft guidelines from the UK's National Health Service that recommend exercise as the core treatment for people with wear and tear joint arthritis. The agency says it might hurt to begin with, but then it will ease the pain and help people stay healthy and slim. And osteoarthritis, as I'm sure our audience knows, is very common. Four million Canadians have it. So, Dr. Finkelstein, what about this? Well, I'm not sure exercise is going to replace um, 100% total joint replacement because oh, arthritis, you know, is a is a uh, a progressive degenerative condition. But exercise has a lot of benefits that um, certainly um, can prolong the need for uh, a surgical procedure, can delay the need for a, a knee replacement. Uh, and I think some of the advice in the past has been that, you know, or people are afraid to exercise because hurt is is equated to harm. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing harm to the joint. It's what you can tolerate. So, they, you know, patients may avoid doing it. But certainly, if you're going to do exercise, you want to do more of a low-impact type exercise. And that's what this article talks about, is that exercise has a lot of other positive effects on the joint, on the muscles, on the cardiovascular system. Uh, and and it doesn't necessarily make uh, exercise certainly doesn't make things worse. It can make things better, and and uh, release of endorphins is a, almost a natural uh, pain relief uh, mechanism. And so I I am a hundred percent in agreement with this with this article that exercise should be encouraged, but the right exercise. Uh, low impact as opposed to high impact. Well, uh, on, on that, I have to, full disclosure, so I have arthritis in my knees. I've been mm-hmm. told it's end-stage arthritis mm-hmm. by some people. I play tennis three or four times a week and do other exercise on most of the other days. Uh, sometimes um, my knee hurts, but it usually, you know, it hurts worse if I don't play. So there you go. Right. And, and you know, and and that's not not uncommon. And generally, uh, a degenerative arthritis like like um, uh, like in the knee, like you described, often it's painful after a certain period of time. People can tolerate maybe twenty minutes, thirty minutes. Um, maybe some people can play longer, depending on the degree of arthritis. So it's th- there's a, a tolerance um, issue depending on the severity of the arthritis. But you're not making it worse, and certainly there's no point. You know, not doing things that you know you enjoy in your in your life, and so I think exercise has a lot of positive benefits. And like I said, it's the right exercise. But I want to point out the other um, important part of this, um, you know, article from the um, uh, from the National Health Service in Britain was was that really it's not a, a good idea to be taking narcotics for chronic type pain. And that's, that was their big thing is that, you know, chronic pain or a chronic, or a chronic disorder that just will lead to pain every time you use it. If you're, if you're relying on narcotics, the narcotics do have more, uh, are, can be more detrimental than good. Uh, it can lead to, a, you know, addictions and tolerances. And then, you know, you, you then become reliant on that narcotic and you may need higher levels to maintain the same activity. But you could get the same activity with other types of medication like anti-inflammatories and arthritis, uh, sorry, and exercise uh, can also, um, if you understand uh, the benefits of exercise and the, the other consequences, it could, it could provide you the same benefit that the narcotics uh, can without any of the side effects. What so about the other? Mm-hmm. What about CBD oil? I see a lot of products, uh, both topical and taking a, to take, uh, uh, you know, CBD for that type of stuff. <laughs> so full disclosure, I can't, I can't tell you how beneficial that is because I don't, do not have a lot of experience um, with that. I know that it's being recommended and, you know, it's so, it, it's, interesting that a lot of patients come to my clinic, like, you know, older patients, 
and they're all taking it. And, you know, 10 years ago, I would never have seen that. And, and it's been recommended. Um, you know, the, it, I'm not sure it, it's helping the, you know, the, the exercise, but it certainly may help, you know, afterwards, it seems to help with sleep. <laughs> uh, but whether, uh, you know, whether it works like an anti-inflammatory in the joint, the way uh, a Voltaren cream does, I honestly, I cannot say. And is there evidence that Voltaren cream works? Yes, that does work. That's an anti-inflammatory directly applied in the joint. Um, I use Voltaren cream when I, when I play golf. I put it around my, you know, my, my shoulder because uh, I have a bit of a degenerative uh, shoulder, and it, it's, it's amazing. Really, I will try yeah. it again. Yeah, uh, thanks for well, the Karen, trip. I think yeah. I tried it when it first came out, mm-hmm. and it's like, yeah. Oh, uh. Uh, so, uh, what advice do you have for people who have arthritis and who are probably shying away from exercise because it might hurt at first? Well, my, my advice is do what you can tolerate, and if you can, if you can adapt your exercise such that it is more low impact, um, you know, maybe doubles tennis, uh, maybe better than singles tennis, you know, maybe it's a bit less running. Um, if you can uh, be on a, a, tr- a bicycle, a stationary bicycle, as opposed to a treadmill, uh, that way you're getting the, you know, the aerobic conditioning and the, and the fitness, uh, you really want to, you know, minimize the impact to the knee. But you do want to do the exercise to work on the muscle strengthening, the flexibility, and the overall uh, cardiac, uh, cardiovascular improvement that exercise brings, which, you know, as I also said, the, the natural endorphins that are released when you are exercising. So I would try to encourage as much exercise as possible, the right type of exercise, um, use some of these uh, products such as anti-inflammatories, uh, you know, orally if you don't have any contraindications to it, uh, locally over the knee joint, um, and um, if CBD oil helps, <laughs> try that. Um, but okay. I, I am in agreement with you know with what the uh, National Health Service is saying, and I would avoid uh, narcotics for uh, this type of problem. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Joel Finkelstein. Thank you. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.